Hello, we're so, so excited to welcome you to Brownie, the podcast that celebrates British Indian voices. We explore what it means to be born in Britain with roots in India and how this forms our experience of living in the UK. I'm Shivani, born in London with grandparents from Punjab. And I'm Ashani, a British Gujarati, also born in London. Brownie Podcast has travelled to Bristol today to chat to best-selling writer Nikesh Shukla. We first came across Nikesh as the editor of The Good Immigrant, a game-changing collection of essays written by people of colour exploring life in the UK as part of an ethnic minority. A second anthology, The Good Immigrant USA, where 26 writers reflect on America has just been published, so we can't wait to speak a little more to him about that. It's also out in hardback now. Nikesh has also written three critically acclaimed novels, Coconut Unlimited, which was nominated for the Costa Award, Meat Space, and most recently, The One Who Wrote Destiny. Through his British Indian characters, Nikesh explores the complexities and contradictions of immigrant identity. He exposes South Asian stereotypes in a humorous and energetic style. In the past, Nikesh has written a column for The Observer, as well as an award-winning short film called Two Dorsas, a hilarious look at the meaning of authenticity and being British Indian. He's also hosted a podcast of his own, and we could really keep going on. Ever since we started brainstorming Brownie Podcast, Nikesh has been our dream guest, so sitting here feels a little surreal. Thank you so much for being here, Nikesh. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me, guys. So we thought we'd start with The Good Immigrant USA, which has just been published, and we've really enjoyed reading it over the past few weeks. Um, Can you tell our listeners how it's different to the first Good Immigrant collection? Yeah, sure. So uh, when the Good Immigrant came out, um, <clears throat> lots and lots of people approached us to do um, lots of different variations of the book. And uh, a bunch of people said we should do an American one. And I wasn't really sure I wanted to do that. You know, I felt like I'd really uh, started something important with trying to platform more British writers of colour and I really wanted to like really hone in on cultivating a healthy ecology of uh, British uh, literature by writers of colour. Um, but the news is something you just can't look away from and you know when um, when people are marching through Charlottesville uh, shouting Jews will not replace us and uh, white supremacists are shooting up clubs and mosques and um, you know all of these things that were happening. One of the contributors to the original book, Shimon Suleiman, she lives in Brooklyn. And the more we talked about it, the more we felt that there were, it was worth doing an American book. Uh, and so I guess the main difference is that she co-edited it with me, which kind of gives us that sort of on the ground authenticity in terms of her being able to edit from a position of knowledge rather than a position of uh, being alien to the country and sort of how that country moves, um, and the the thing about the thing about when you edit an anthology is it's really hard to edit an anthology and it not kind of be skewed towards your tastes. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously everything you know all art is subjective, right? And so one of the things that people said a lot about the Good Immigrant was that it was much funnier than they expected it to be because who 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 could imagine that angry ethnics could have a laugh? Eh? <laughs> um, but it was funny because you know my background is as a comedy writer, as a I write sitcoms and I write comedic fiction and so that's why it was funny. So curating it with Shimen who uh, has completely different tastes to me even um and um, has a different different sensibility to me, and she's a poet. You can definitely tell that 
um, we've cu curated something that feels a lot more poetic and a lot more uh, it luxuriates in its in the language rather than the jokes. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, like the writing style is the fundamental difference uh, with the book. It feels uh, much more, and I hate using this word within the context of um, writers of colour because we get it all the time. They're lyrical. Uh, um, yeah, that would be the main difference. The other difference is we didn't use crowdfunding for this one. We we went to Dialogue Books, which is an amazing new imprint set up at Hachette, which is one of like the biggest publishers in the country, and they've got an imprint called Dialogue, which is run by the incredible Charmaine Lovegrove, who has been such a champion of me and the Good Immigrant since. Uh, since the early days of that project and so getting to work with her was a real dream. And so in terms of curating a work that's a collection of um, pieces by different uh, writers of colour, did you find that there was a certain commonality between kind of the immigrant experience? Um, why do you think a collection of people of, who are immigrants but of different backgrounds work so well together? That's a lot of questions. <laughs> Um, so in terms of commonalities, yeah, sure, there, there, there are a lot of similarities, a lot of similar experiences, a lot of, a lot of feeling of tension and fear and precariousness in terms of our status in this country. I mean, that you, you kind of hear it in the sarcasm between the, behind the title, The Good Immigrant, you know, it's a sarcastic title because we're talking about people who are demonized from the get-go, you know, whether you're an immigrant or the child of an immigrant, you know, people just assume that you're here to steal all the jobs and all the women in all the uh, NHS waiting room spaces and all the benefits. And uh, and um, you, if you win like a televised baking competition or an Olympic gold medal, um, you become a good immigrant and then suddenly you're everyone's best friend. There was this really great stat joke in Lenny Henry's early stand-up when um, Lenny Henry's talking about getting into a cab and the cab driver goes, all right, Len, because he knows that it's Lenny Henry. He goes, you know, you know what, Len? The thing I hate about black people, actually, you're all right because you're famous. And, you know, that's kind of like, that's the good immigrant aesthetic right there. And so we did find there were lots of similarities, but also there's a lot of difference as well, because like the, the, the other di difference with this book is um, the conversation around race and immigration in the UK is very different to have that conversation in America. Mm. So here, you know, we we have, you know, we're writing from like a very post-Windrush, post-colonial perspective. Um, we're writing we're writing about racism that is institutionalized and and very insidious um and with the american book the conversation around race in america is very different you know you can't approach people for black americans and go do you want to contribute to a book called the good immigrant um because they'll be like i'm not here because of immigration i'm here because of slavery mm -hmm. and so um, we we kind of felt like we didn't we didn't want to put out the, a book with the same title that would like lead people to ask lots of questions about the title of the book and who was contributing before they actually read it. So we felt like one thing we could do. And actually, sorry, going back a step, when the first book came out, uh, it was so much about publishing and it was so much about um, 
trying to make publishing more inclusive. Now, the thing that we hadn't counted for was Brexit and what Brexit was going to do to the immigration debate. So immediately that book became much more political than I ever imagined. Um, but with this book out in the world, like it, it's coming out into a politicised, scary world. And so we had to think a lot more responsibly about what that book was. And so one of the decisions we made was let's look at, let's take the title The Good Immigrant and focus on immigration. Let's focus on those immigrant stories, which is why we have, um, you know, a, a white Jewish writer, Jean Hannah, Hannah Edelstein, writing about uh, travelling, you know, not living in America and then coming back to America to settle down and essentially uh, uh, following a bereavement uh, and not necessarily fe feeling like she belonged in that place. We have someone like Maeve Higgins, who is an Irish immigrant who was illegal for a very long time, talking about, um, talking essentially about the privilege that she had as a white immigrant and how there was never any problem with what she was doing. And she kind of looks back at that time and looks at what, the way the world is now and she really tries her best to use her platform and her the privilege the white privilege of being a white immigrant to try and do good in the world. And she's just one of the most amazing people um in like if you look at her body of work. And so that was kind of the main decision that we we took. When we read the Good Immigrant USA, you're much more explicit about um it's it feels more like a call to arms or a manifesto where you're talking about Trump, you're talking about um, the need for change and reflecting on the political situation in a way that's maybe not there in the first good immigrant. Um, obviously, there's been three years between the publication of each. So we were wondering, how do you think an immigrant or the label of immigrant uh, being an immigrant has changed in, since in the time between the two books? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think, you know, we when we did the first book, it was completely in a bubble. And that's why well, when we were doing the USA book, we decided we have to take the word on at face value mm -hmm. a, a lot more. And um, how has the word changed? I kind of, I feel like people dog whistle when they use the word immigrant sometimes, like they really want to say the P word or the N word. or mm -hmm. uh, it, it kind of feels like it's used quite pejoratively. The other thing that I've noticed is a lot more artists and uh, creatives seem to like like want to make note of the fact that their work is inspired by their immigrant background, which I think is really, really interesting because it basically means that lots of people are feeling compelled to kind of um, show, show the kind of the whole of themselves and show the nuance in their voices and their influences and where they've come from. And I think that you know, for, for years and years and years, we were sort of told to, to hide that kind of side of us and sort of play that stuff down. And, you know, we should be able to stand our, on our own two feet, but, uh, and not just go, oh, this is the brown thing. But actually, I think people are, people are much more in tune with making something of the fact that it is a brown thing or a black thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, I think that's really cool. I think that's really important. It sort of normalizes this thing, you know, I don't want to live in a world where people go, I don't see colour, because that just, it's a lie. Mm. You know, what they should be saying is, I'm not going to treat you differently because of your, because of the colour of your skin, but I'm not, not going to notice it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, there's this sort of interesting, weird battle between like, what people sort of say identity politics is all about, platforming the individual over the community. 
which I think is rubbish. That, and I don't think that's necessarily what identity politics is about. And people going, um, going well, um, it's much more about sort of a homogenousness where, which is, so you know, we should all we should. I don't see color. You know, uh, men and women are equal. Or um, you know, even even when people refer to diverse voices or people of color, or already they're kind of lumping a lot of groups that constitute the majority of the world, interestingly mm. enough, into one thing. And I think, I don't know. I think the the way that the we kind of the way that the language is used is not set in stone at the moment and I think that's sort of interesting but also kind of potentially dangerous I don't know. Mm. Do you think the word immigrant is being reappropriated by people or immigrants? Well I think it's being reclaimed you know um, in the so I I think people are trying to reclaim it for what it is rather than what the British government or the American government Mm. want it to represent you know I was listening to a podcast uh, and this this guy, this comedian was kind of going on and on and on about how he found it embarrassing that you know pe- people from BAME backgrounds are like so quick to call people racist when they use the word coloured, but they refer to themselves as people of colour and you know they're both just the same thing and you're like yes they are both just the same thing but one has a history that the other doesn't mm-hmm. and both have histories that come from different sets of ownership we don't own the word colored we own people of color mm. that's why you self-identify as a person of color i don't own the term bame because bame even that is not set in stone you know when in the 80s everyone was black and then it became ethnic minorities and then it became minority ethnic for a short time and then it became black and minority ethnic and then it became black asian and minority ethnic so i don't own any of those terms mm. and so like that's why i think it's interesting that people are reclaiming the idea of what it is to be an immigrant why people are in the uk identifying much more as a person of color because they feel ownership of those things mm. touch briefly upon the process of getting um, the first good immigrant published um, did you find that there was a kind of uh, a reason why 2016 was the moment where I mean obviously it was crowdfunded but um, that there was a, a certain set setting of within this context of people trying to reclaim the word immigrant that it happened at kind of that moment that there was a kind of finally we have a seat at the table and these voices are, are trying to be heard and, and there's a there's a reception of it within the, the publishing field. Yeah, because I think for the longest time the publishing industry just assumed that those voices, were, people didn't want to read those voices. And that wasn't necessarily because of any consumer report or data testing or market research. It was literally because pe- uh, people are unimaginative and they were like, well, if I am middle class and white and male and from Northwest London, and so all of my colleagues, and we're all here because our parents were able to let us live at home for a year while we did free internships, um, and you know we know how to sell books to people who look like us, um, we don't know how to sell books outside of our own immediate echo chamber, and so I think there's been more of an appetite to kind of diversify who, who, who makes the decisions about what gets published, how they get published, how they get publicised, how they get 
sold and where they get sold and how they get marketed and you know the, the more diversity you see in the different parts of the chain that comprise the book industry the more you will see diversity in um, what you see on the bookshelves like the interesting thing about the good immigrant is like we did all of that through crowdfunding like and people came out in their droves and said we want more books like this and now people are you know we're in a really healthy time for um books by british writers of color which is amazing but like the thing that i worry is that it's not a long-term thing it's not a long-term um change my worry is that like that one big failure that will inevitably happen because books do fail um will just mean all of this go goes away you know you have mediocre white writers get paid hundreds of thousands of pounds to write a book that sells 63 copies all of the time and yet no one is saying fewer straight white men should write books mm -hmm. you know but we will have one book not do not bang in the way it needs to bang and then people go well maybe this diversity thing well we gave it a good shot <laughs> and that again that comes back to that word that i i probably overuse a lot it's, it's precarious it's such a precarious thing to be because it just forces it forces you to be have to be excellent and like obviously we should all be trying to be excellent at all times but the problem is the bar for our excellence is so much higher than the bar for the excellence of mediocre white dudes and that's a problem um, because while we all strive to be the best possible thing we can other people aren't going to judge the best of me based on the best of what I think I can do they're going to judge the best of me based on twice my effort that's messed up and so who do you perceive as being kind of the, the reader of the good immigrant do you think it's a work specifically for, for people of colour? I mean, there are primary and secondary and tertiary audiences, right? Mm -hmm. And so if like your secondary audience is like, woke white liberals, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it felt sick even saying it, who like want to kind of challenge their perception of what they believe, what they believe our lives to look like, great, happy for you to, to read the book. Mm -hmm. When I was 14 years old, I, was watching TV, sitting next to my mum and dad, and an advert came on BBC Two for a TV show called The Buddha of Suburbia, starring a young Naveen Andrews, like as his first ever role. And he looked beautiful and it looked funny and weird. And he was like taking drugs and shagging girls and living in a suburb of London that didn't look too dissimilar to my suburb of London. And I was like, I need to watch this. I've never seen a brown person on TV before that hasn't been a Bollywood thing. I need to see this. But, you know, it was 1994, it was a one-TV one household, and I didn't really feel like I was going to want to sit next to my mum and dad and watch that. And also, like, how did like how did the timer work on those old VCR recorders? Like, they were possible to use. <laughs> um, and, but it said based on the novel by Hanif Qureshi, and so I was like, oh, yeah, well, I can get the book out from the library. My mum can't stop me reading. And I really remember getting the book out from the library and seeing that front page and just seeing brown people on the cover and I was like this is amazing and I read the first lines of that book my name is Karima Mir and I'm an Englishman through and through almost and where he goes almost I was like rah I feel seen I feel like this is me this is my world I'm an almost kid I live in between two worlds you know I grew up in the 80s and 90s where people bandied around the word coconut like it meant something like there was this sort of binariness to being Asian where like 
you have to like Bangra and Bollywood, otherwise you're a coconut. And it was just rubbish. And like, there was no nuance to being an Asian. And we didn't have things like social media to make, like, for us to be able to see that there were other misfits out there like us. And so when I read that one word, almost, I just felt so seen and like, um, so, and that stayed with me and that was a mirror. And like books can be mirrors, TV shows can be mirrors. And, but then I never read anything like that until when I was 22 years old. So between 14 and 22, quite a formative time of your life, right? Mm -hmm. I read White Teeth by Zadie Smith and I was mm -hmm. like, oh my God, there's this, there's this mixed race person writing about what it is to be Asian in the 90s in Northwest London, which is where I'm from. This is amazing. She gets this. This is wicked. You know, that has been like the thrust of everything I do, just trying to have, make sure people have their bit of suburbia moment. Mm -hmm. And when The Good Immigrant came out, like a month after it came out, we were doing a gig at Manchester Literature Festival at this, um, and we'd taken over this place called Gorilla, which is like a music venue that they turned into a literature event. And it was sold out, it was packed, there were hundreds of people there, and the majority of people there were young people of colour. Now, two nights before that, we had done our first event for the Guinea Grin at a Waterstones, and this middle-aged middle-class white lady but the type of person you always see at book events put her hand up in the q a she was sitting in the front row and she said how does it feel that we're all white and you're just lecturing us about racism and darren chetty one of the contributors was like but you're not all white look behind you and she looked behind and it was the first time i noticed that for the first time at a book event there, were, there was more people of color in the audience than white people and that was amazing and then fast forward like to manchester literature festival and like the it was like 75% people of colour and they were all they all looked like they were in their 20s and you know the signing queue was longer than the event and I was standing next to Inwa Ellums uh, the poet and theatre maker who's one of the contributors to the book and a really close friend of mine and we're both like practically in tears all these like young people coming up to us and going I feel seen thank you thank you so much for doing this book and I was like Inwa people are having their but of suburbia moment and he was like what do you mean and then i repeated to him that story i just told you and he was like yeah man like serious and that was and that was the point at which i realized who the book was for because like when i did the book and it was for publishing that was fine but actually it became bigger than what i intended it for and so i had to then realign who it had to be for and i kind of made it for you guys do you know what i mean like, yeah because, you know, that's not the book that I ever, that I never sat down and went, I'm going to do an anthology about race and immigration. I'm a novelist. I'm a sitcom writer. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. So that book is like complete community vibes. And so it has to always like the focal point for everything that is has to be you guys. Mm. Yeah. It's funny because the How Not To Be essay and the Good Immigrant Year essay, um, I read that and then I pass it to my mum and both of us just couldn't, my mum just said, this is a little bit of me and a little bit of you. And it was, the even we were talking about how much we resonated with that essay. And it's a really rare feeling. Um, and but you, can I just, yeah. sorry, can I just say a thing about that essay yeah. is Priya, who wrote that essay, like it's really important that like projects like The Good Immigrant, you ensure you kind of keep the ladder, you kind of keep keep the door open or keep the la keep holding the ladder before closing the hatch behind you or try not to close the hatch and Bria was one of like 
the, our first time writers that's the first time she's been published in a book I mean she's written stuff online before and stuff but yeah. that was the first proper commission she's ever had and it was really important for us to kind of replicate what we did with the original Good Immigrant like Varito uh, who wrote and interestingly a similar similarly toned essay in The Good Immigrant she was a young person I mentored um, at a youth project I used to work at mm -hmm. and when I was putting the thing together I was like I need to ensure that people like Varita are getting this opportunity alongside the big people like Bim Adewumni and Reni, Reni Edo Lodge and all the rest of it. So like one of my first ever writing commissions um, was in a, an anthology called Tell Tales, Volume 2, edited by Rajiv Balasubramanian, who was a writer I really rated. He won uh, some big award for his first book, In Our Beautiful Disguises. And this guy, Nia Ikwe Parks, who was like he was just one of my mentors on the spoken word team and they were both like they had an open call for the second volume of um this book and i sent it in sent a short story and i got into the book and um and they really mentored me it was the first time i'd been edited properly and like when i got that book through the post and saw my name on the back alongside all these writers who i loved and rated like zena edwards and like Coche newland and um, so there was a barcode on the back of the book which meant people could scan I was just, I was so gassed. Yeah. Uh, it was so amazing. That was such a powerful moment for me. And like, um, and so you kind of have to pay that opportunity forward to people. Mm. And like, um, I really remember one of the things that Nee did um, was he was like, to all of the contributors to the first two books, he was like, do you know there's free money you can get from the Arts Council to write a novel? And we were like, what? And so we all looked at the forms and we were like, we don't understand these forms, they're very complicated. And he was like, okay, give me a second. And he organized a workshop with the literature coordinator from the Arts Council who basically said, yes, our forms are very difficult to fill in because they're geared towards theater companies. Mm -hmm. Here is how you, as a first time novelist who wants to um, get some funding for some time to write, can um, fill out this form and get some money. Um, and they took us through every single screen on the, every single page of the application told us how to fill it in. We all went away and filled it in. We all got a small grant from the Arts Council. Amazing. And like that's the community that I came out of. Yeah. And that, you know, to, and that's the kind of community that I wanted to foster with the Gillingrin. Like that stuff is so important to me. It's so like formative for, you know, I wouldn't be here without me giving me that opportunity. Yeah. And so like, you can only pay these things forward, yeah. right? And apart from um, amazing mentors and the work that you're doing, how else do you think um, society needs to change or what other things do we need to do to make sure this moment isn't precarious and it carries on into the future? I mean, honestly, like there's the business way, which is to kind of vote with your wallet or, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to buy this stuff. Make sure if you feel they're culturally important and culturally relevant artists, you know, tell the world, you know, gas them up on social media, like go into bookshops and buy their work and go to the cinema and see their films and then tell other people to go and do it like word of mouth, made the good immigrant. Like yeah. that's that side. I think the thing about diversity in the arts is diversity often gets hung up on this sort of self-perpetuating thing where diversity becomes about diversity. So you, we're currently in a very healthy period for very issue-based 
books about race and immigration from lots of writers of colour, which is great because they're important books. And like Rennie's book and Akala's book and The Good Immigrant and Safe and Mariam Khan's anthology, they're all important books. But at the same time, the thing that is going to um, keep us not being precarious is Marlon James going away and writing a fantasy mm. book that is a number one Sunday Times bestseller. It's going to be like us putting our money behind like the sci-fi writers and the crime writers and the writers who write about Norwegian beekeeping and like, um, you know, the Asian Sally Rooney and like, and all the rest of it. That, you know, Queenie by Candice Carty Williams is, you know, we need to support those books because they're, you know, while, while they, the gaze is very much um, not the white gaze and it's written from the gaze of like the cultural background of whoever's writing it, um, which makes it really, really authentic. It is a universal book. And so I think that's going to be the thing that will stop these things being so precarious. We asked all our guests on Brownie about their background and how your family settled in the UK. Can you tell us the story? So where are you from? Where are you really from? Where are you really, 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 really from? No, no, where are your parents from? You know, where are you? Where the, um, I was born here. I was born in Northwest London in Harrow. Uh, my dad's from Kenya. My mum's from Aden. Uh, my mum's brother came to the UK in the early 60s. Um, he was supposed to come to London but ended up in Keithley because he struggled to find lodgings that would put up brown people. Um, and then in 1968 he tried to buy a house when the rest of the family was all coming over and uh, he couldn't, no one would sell him a house and he took some people to court because they refused to sell him a house because he was brown. And he's the first person to have ever brought a case of racial discrimination under the 1968 Race Relations Act. Um, my dad came over as an like to study to be an accountant, um, and they wouldn't give him a deg his degree for some reason. Um, yeah, like I grew up in Northwest London, um, like spent the majority of my time in Harrow. Which was actually so, so I also live in Harrow um, and I actually found when I was reading Coconut Unlimited, like you were saying about that moment of being seen, reading about St George's and knowing exactly where that escalator comes up was just exhilarating. Um, but I suppose living, you've, you, you now live in Bristol, um, do you find there's a difference between um, kind of being an immigrant in, in a big town like London where there are lots of different immigrant communities um, or kind of a slightly smaller part of, of, of the UK uh, with a slightly smaller town. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a community in Bristol. Mm -hmm. um, I have friends here and that's about it. But I... Bristol's a strange place because it's very multicultural, but it's not very intercultural, which I think is an important distinction to make um, and because it's not very intercultural you kind of really struggle to find your community one of the lifesavers for me was like randomly walking home from the centre of the city to my home and like taking a different way home I walked past a Gujarati restaurant um, and I went in and 
they did that thing where they were like Gujarati Chora and I was like yeah and we started talking in Gujarati and then I um, they became the people I would go to when I you know because they had kitchen and gaddi and all the like <laughs> foods that I grew up with um, and we could chat in Gujarati and it was really really amazing and like every now and then you have these little moments where something like that happens my favourite one was um you know, I do this journal at the moment and I took a bunch of the journals to the post office to post them. And the guy at the post office just took one look at me and he, he just went, good job, teacher. And I was like, how does that work for me? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, what is all this stuff? And I said, oh, it's a magazine that I made. And he said, are you, we were talking, you drafting. He was like, are you selling them yourself? And I said, yes. And he went, this is not a viable business, brother. You have to be able, you can't have a business unless you can employ people to do these menial tasks for you. Why are you taking your own stuff to the post office? Did you pack everything yourself? And I went, yeah. And he said, I can tell you didn't do it. You're the boss of this company. I was like, are you my uncle? Are you my dad? What is going on? This is so weird. You're like lecturing me on like my business plan. Um, and like every now and then I have like a random moment like that where I'm like, well, yeah. Okay, it's really nice, but like, I, you know, the majority, the whole of my family is still in Harrow, and I miss them all dearly, but, um, you know, Bristol is a great place to be a creative, because it's cheaper than London, it's smaller than London, there's a real creative vibe around, you know, like you'll walk out of here and like talk to anyone and I'll meet like a musician or an artist or a theatre maker within like three people, and that's, that's really amazing because it just means that you're constantly interrogating your practice and you're constantly thinking about things like storytelling and being outside of the London hustle I feel like there would be part of me that would be much more invested in like being seen at the right literary parties and like going to readings and all that kind of stuff I don't care about any of that stuff here I just get to be a writer which is really cool do you mind if we chat a bit more about coconut unlimited because um we both love it um, and we really recommend our listeners to read it um, and it's a book that's full of youthful energy and optimism and it talks about universal themes in some ways like teenage awkwardness friends uh, friendships and love of rap music um, and it can be hilarious but also a devastating read and painful particularly at the times of racist abuse and we were just wondering was this kind of based on your own experience of growing up I was inspired by stuff that happened around me and people that, that I was around. I think, you know, the thing that I think about with that book that has kind of haunted me was the, like, you know, you ask Sadie Smith about white teeth and she can tell you all of the things that she feels like she could do better. Because, mm -hmm. like, the thing about being a writer is, like, every, every time you kind of level up onto the next project, you feel like you've got better. Now, I look back at Coconut Unlimited fondly because it was my first novel, but I can see all of the stuff that I wrong with it mm -hmm. that I would do over. I think I would probably probably make one of the band female um, okay. and just have better female characters in it. I, th I think they all kind of, they all end up being the butt of or facilitating a joke and that isn't good writing really. Um, and, and you know something I did slightly better in meat space but then the one who wrote destiny i was like right okay this is this is me i can't be a shit about this anymore i've got to do this properly so like 
that's why two of the two of the main characters are female. That's why like I tried to have like have lots of interesting different South Asian women on on in the book. Like I was really like struck watching the big sick mm. by how all of the women in that all of the brown women in that film are the butt of the joke. Mm. And then the the butt of the joke who and spoiler alert if you haven't seen the big sick yet towards the end of the film as a like big grand gesture romantic gesture Camille Nanjiani sets fire to all of their photographs and puts the ashes in a jar <laughs> and presents them to a white girl and you're like whoa the symbolism of this is so messed up and I was like I can't be that guy I can't be that guy like doing doing brown women dirty like that that is horrible and so yeah that the like a really, really important thing to me has been like ensuring that I'm not perpetuating the problem that South Asian men seem to do, which is always like have a white romantic lead and like <laughs> make all their brown women the butts of the joke or like stereotypes and stuff. Mm. And what about the interplay in the book between um, brown, the brown boys and the black culture, the black rap culture that they try to um, emulate? Um, and I was just thinking about it in terms of um, now there's been things in the media about the idea of self-determining your race and associating yourself with uh, choosing the history that you associate yourself with. Um, and there are debates about cultural appropriation. And I know that in the book, Amit and his friends, they're you know, just trying to fit into a world and find a place because everyone seems to reject them. And they're ultimately just part of a music subculture. Um, but I was aware of the fact that maybe some people in 2019 might say that that's no longer woke or appropriate. And I was just wondering how you would respond to that or if you think times have changed since when you wrote the book. Yeah, well, I think I think the thing that I probably would have liked to have done in retrospect is comment more about anti-blackness in South Asian communities and how that mm. does exist and how it's often juxtaposed with this sort of performative um, performative rap thing that the, that the boys are doing which is like they're performing black but they don't really have any understanding of the culture and also they're not they're not picking their parents and uncles up on anti-blackness within within their community which will exist and um, and so I think it's just, I kind of left it, I left it on the page in quite a subtle way, but I think I probably would, rewriting it now, I'd probably make more of a thing of it because I think it's an important thing to address. Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, is a real sad thing about The Good Immigrant USA is uh, the stand-up comedian Hari Kondabolu wrote an essay for us um, which was all about anti-blackness in the South Asian communities and it's a brilliant essay and it's hilarious and it you know it basically you know it says everything that I would want to say about the subject uh, unfortunately um, Hurry was Hurry was very late addition to the project and we had to go to press and he had a bereavement quite suddenly around the time of him having to hand in his final edits and he couldn't do it because he had to you know, he, had, well, he was grieving and, you know, all, all my love to him. But it's such a shame that we didn't get that book, uh, that essay in the book, because it was so important. And I think it would have really, like, done what it needed to do. Mm -hmm. 
does that mean maybe there's a, a third bird coming? <laughs> you know, watch this space. It won't be America and it won't be the UK, but yeah. then we've got an idea for what we want to do to round out the trilogy. That is exciting. <laughs> yeah. And there is a TV show in development and other bits and bobs. So, you know, the good immigrant, there's life life in the project. I suppose um, just to kind of now start to close up slightly more. Um, so for a reader who has read The Good Immigrant um, and enjoyed it um, and loved it and wants to start kind of reading more pieces written by, by writers of colour, what would you recommend? Um, depends what you want to read about. <laughs> um, like, in terms of uh, politically, like, God, Reniedo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, mm -hmm. Carla's book, Natives, they're both brilliant. Uh, I'm going to forget stuff now. Fatima Asghar's uh, poetry collection, If They Come For Us, is one of the best books that I read last year, and it just talks about queerness and being Muslim in, in white spaces and um, partition and it's just phenomenal. It's a knockout book. Um, and the other book that I recently read that I've just really fallen in love with is called Good Talk by Mira Jacob and it's a graphic memoir about the conversations that she has with her mixed race son um, trying to kind of explain bleak bleak political situation they found themselves in in the last three years to him and like the conversations that that kind of the knock-on effect of those conversations on her wider community with her like friends and family and like finding out that her in-laws are trump voters and you know finding solace in her female friends and it's just it's wonderful and it's i really recommend it and you've kind of uh given us a sneak peek of this already but is there anything else that you're um, you're up to, are you writing any more novels, um, apart from the good immigrant stuff that's coming? Yeah, so I've got uh, my second YA out in June, it's called The Boxer, and it's about a kid who gets beaten up in a racist attack and uh, takes up boxing, but when he does, um, his new best friend at the boxing club starts to get radicalised by the far right, and so it's, um, and the book is set over 10 rounds of their of his first ever boxing match, which is against his friend, and it then sort of traces back their friendship. Um, so I'm working on that. I'm working on a bunch of TV things, uh, and I will start a new novel at some point this year, but who knows when. Super busy. <laughs> Um, well, I think that's everything, and thank you yeah, so, so much. You. For, it's been honestly a dream come true, so thank <laughs> you. <laughs>
And this empowers them, not only in the way that it educates them about sanitary products, which they've never used before and they find embarrassing to talk about, but it also enables them financially um, but because they work producing pads and earn money. And it particularly follows this one young girl who's just lovely and she um, is training to be a policewoman and the, the earnings that she makes from working in the pad factory uh, are funding her police training. So I just thought it was really great. Um, it's kind of shocking to watch f uh, where we talk about periods and sanitary products so openly um, and it's so, so taboo in the society. So it's only half an hour. I'd really recommend it. I think you'd enjoy it. I'm gonna check it out, Ship. Yeah, you should. Um, and what are you recommending this week, Ashan? This week I'm recommending an Instagram account. Um, it's called Brown History. And each post is a really lovelily curated um, history of different bits of South Asian stories. So the one that I came across this week that I felt a particular link to was the story of Jaya Ben Desai, who um, helped to put on a strike at the Grunswick factory, which was in the 70s. And she kind of spearheaded this movement where she was getting all of the workers together who the majority were South Asian women um, and they were fighting against the conditions that they were working under in the factories, really kind of cruel um, and hostile environments to, to be working in. They ended up picketing for two whole years um, and lots of the stories were, were kind of headlines where they were calling them the strikers and saris. And the images that are on this Instagram account, I think, are really powerful. So there's the image of, of her in her sari, quite small in comparison to these huge, burly uh, police officers in their full regalia. Um, and I think it was a really great story to shed light on um, about the power of, of women um, and also just kind of the ability to fight against um, something that, that is unjust. Yeah, and it's cool because in that story, maybe people never knew about any Indian involvement. and I certainly didn't, so um, I'll definitely be giving that a follow. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please rate, subscribe and spread the word. Tweet us at Podcast Brownie. Give us a follow on Instagram at Brownie Podcast or email us at browniepodcast at gmail.com. You've been listening to Brownie Podcast with Ashani Bart, Shivani Kocha, produced by George Swainston. See you next time. <laughs>